Place it comfortably. So good morning, everyone. Day three. Um, the title of this talk, The Hardest Teaching. <laughs> and it's about um, empathic joy. And as I mentioned yesterday, the four immeasurables or the Brahma Viharas are um, love, compassion, joy and equanimity. Um, most Dharma teachers, you know, in the, in the tradition of, of Buddhism, consider that um, empathic joy is the most difficult of the, of the four to, um, to, to practice. Um, it's called mudita, is the um, Pali or term for it. It's often translated as sympathetic joy, um, but I prefer empathic joy. And its enemy is envy, jealousy, competitiveness, and its near enemy is mindless exuberation or excessive exuberation. We'll look at that more. But before we look at empathic joy, which is the joy we experience from other people's successes and pleasures and fulfilment in life, it's, it's, how, it's empathic towards others. Let's just first of all look at what joy is in terms of just our own joy, you know, of being alive. And there is a, a term which we use in the Dharma which is called causeless joy, where you're just happy for no good reason, right? That's a kind of a experience that just arises out of practice the more you do it. It's not because you succeeded in anything or something, happy circumstances happened to you that day. Um, it's just that you're happy to be alive on, on the earth and, and, and breathing, you know, it's like a sense of gratitude for just being here. Um, I would say that the times I experience that the most is probably when I'm in, in nature or on the ocean, you know, where it's just that sense of rejoicing in the, in the openness of life as it is. Um, so there's that causeless kind of joy and it's something which arises through non, non-doing, through non-striving. And one of my favourite lines from a poem, uh, which I, I read years and years ago, um, it's always stayed with me, is from William Blake. Who, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. The, the, in other words, being one with the, the transience of life as it's coming and going, not trying to hold on to anything. As soon as you, since you try and hold on to anything, grasp onto anything, you, you kill the joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's about becoming one with the, with the transience and impermanence of life is where we find true joy. And um, Thoreau, who was the, um, I think, 19th century American writer, said something to the effect that, that chasing happiness or chasing joy is like chasing a butterfly. And the more you chase it, the further it gets away from you. He said, if you just sit still and quiet, it might just land on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of joy. You can't make it happen. Mm-hmm. And the more you try and make it happen, the further you get away from it. But sit still and do nothing for long enough and something starts to, to bubble up inside. 
And the, the nature of joy and the nature of Dharma practice and the, both practice and the, the awakening, you know, the maturing that comes out of, out of practice brings us back to a sense of playfulness. It's really, really important to, re, to remember this. We can get too serious about our practice. And we lose playfulness because we basically take ourselves too seriously as we get older. Children naturally have this um, natural ability to play. Animals do too, like dogs in a park. You know, they just come up and play with one another. And um, so it, it's in, the, um, in our true nature to be playful, you know. And you could say that the nature of the universe is playful, you know. It's kind of like some, I think Christians would say it's God's playground, you know, from that perspective. So everything is actually in play and cooperation with one another mostly, um, with a bit of, you know, spicy competition thrown in as well. But it's mostly cooperation and coordination. And as we take ourselves too serious as we grow up, and particularly in a culture like ours that uh, emphasises individuality and individual success so much, we we get driven by status anxiety and we take ourselves more and more seriously and we lose touch with that natural playfulness that we had as a child. So the whole maturing process of Dharma practice is that we let go of those fixed identities you know, that, are, that are somehow to do with competition and with success and individuality and that we, we drop back into the true nature of our playfulness again. Koans are playful. They may not look playful from the outside, particularly when we get stuck on one. But it's the nature of... Um, it's, it's often referred to as Dharma combat. You know, the, the, the challenging and responding of teachers and students and so on. But in its, in its best spirit, it, it's, a, it's a playful experience. And Robert Aitken, who was my main koan teacher, said it's like these, these monks and priests lo- tossing the ball of the Dharma backwards and forwards. Like, you catch it. You know, see if you can catch that one. Okay, and I'll throw it back. And you'll see if you, I can catch that one. And it's, it's a playful experience. And in Mumon's um, uh, uh, commentary on the first koan, we usually work on the koan Mu, is that when you, when you break through Mu, his words are, you enjoy a samadhi of frolic and play. Uh-huh. That's the nature of the experience. It's like you've broken out of this serious shell of the ego into something that's softer, you know, and more joyful inside. Um, it'd be good sometimes if um, Dharma teachers express this a little bit more. Sometimes when I look on the web and I go into see websites of um, other Dharma teachers, particularly male, I must say, they are with these serious faces and looking very serious and profound. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I look at them and say, lighten up, guys, do you know? It's, lighten up, it's playful, you know? Uh-huh. It's not quite so serious. So, we would all like to experience more joy, whether it's, whether it's um, causeless joy that's just coming out of the joy of being, um, 
But one of the ways that we, we generate joy is um, having, having a, um, a vicarious pleasure in the joy of others. We see other people enjoying successes or wonderful things in their life. And if we have an empathic connection to their joy, we experience the joy as well, you know, and we celebrate it as well. They can even demonstrate from MRI studies on the brain that when people experience empathic joy towards others, the joy centres in their brain light up. So it's like generosity. If we're, if we're generosity, it actually is self-fulfilling, you know, and empathic joy to others is also self-fulfilling as well. But let's look now um, the harder part of it, you know, which is um, uh, what blocks empathic joy from coming forth, and it's envy or jealousy, uh, which can arise out of um, competitiveness. And when I reflect on it in myself, if I practice with this and try and get in touch with any feelings of envy, the best description that comes up is it's like eating a shit sandwich. Uh-huh. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do, you know, to actually acknowledge envy and security in yourself. Um, it's really hard to do. That's why all of these teachers through the history of the Dharma said it's the hardest teaching. Um, and I would suggest just at the moment, you know, as a reflection, you, you think of someone that you might feel envy towards or jealousy towards and just sit with it for a minute, just to experience what it's like. That's probably enough of eating a shit sandwich for the moment. But it's unpleasant, isn't it? Yeah? It's unpleasant. It's like, don't really want to look at that. Don't want to really acknowledge that. But it's through, it's through particularly through Zen practice and, and, and again, particularly through um, uh, Charlotte Joko Beck's teaching, it was always not trying to make out you are joyful or loving or whatever and trying to pretend you are to live up to an image. She really used to run a sword through that and cut it off. But, but what the practice was was about mainly about what, what acknowledging what actually blocks these things from coming through and staying with it. It's the harder side of practice to stay with that unpleasantness. Um, so that's the first step in working with this practice of cultivating um, empathic joy. First of all, you've got to acknowledge your envy, right? acknowledge the jealousy, acknowledge the insecurity around it and the, the anger that might arise out of it and the competitiveness that arises out of it. Then if you, if you acknowledge it, and of course I must say and emphasise acknowledging it in a non-judgmental way. You know, some people see these negative experiences and they, they spiral down into guilt and shame and it just becomes more toxic. That's not what we're talking about here. Acknowledgement is just um, non-judgmental acknowledgement, like, yeah, it's here, 
that's what's there. Just like you can say, you know, the colour of the floor is brown or the sky's blue. Yep, it's there. Let's let's just see it for what it is. If we don't do that, we're at risk of going off into all kind of pretend and phony joy, you know, and happiness and faking it. Um, But once we acknowledge, then we're starting from a a, a position of humility, I guess. Um, But we'll say a bit, bit more about that later. Um, and how we how we practice with it. Um, in terms of the the near enemy of joy, which is considered to be um, like excessive or mindless exuberation, um, that can I'll give you an example of it. But that can come about through. Um, wanting to celebrate the worldly successes of other people because, not because you're actually empathising with their happiness, but it's kind you want to identify with them as being successful. And the most common example of this in our culture is the the, um, adulation of celebrities, like a celebrity culture. And people, they don't even know these people, do you know, but they're either very beautiful or they're very talented in some kind of way. And they're famous and people will get all excited and exuberant about something minor in their own everyday life that they're sharing on social media and get all, all excited about it. It's because it's this, this desire to be like that, you know, in this sort of very sort of shallow, worldly kind of way. So it's not that kind of over-the-top, exuberant kind of joy that we're talking about here, Um, but something which is um, much more um, peaceful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also important to discern here as well. We're not not talking about um, experiencing empathic joy towards people who gain some kind of success in life through unethical behaviour. It's out of of wholesome behaviour that we're we're giving empathic joy. So, for example, empathic joy, an example is you've got a a friend, a girlfriend or woman friend who's trying to fall pregnant, you know, and she hasn't been able to do it for the last four or five years and suddenly she falls pregnant, you know, and she's... She's going really well and she's into the second trimester and you feel just a sense of real joy for her that something that she was looking for was fulfilled. Um, But that's very different from, say, um, celebrating going to some person's house who's just bought a $10 million house that they've they've gained the money through corruption, do you know, or through unethical behaviours like gambling or whatever, do you know, that, that harm other people. Um, it's not about so. There's a discernment in terms of what we we give empathic joy to, and and what we don't. Um, you're probably familiar with the the German word Schadenfreude, right? And we we often use that word in English because there really isn't an equivalent in English. Um, but what we mean by it, of course, is taking pleasure in the most in the misfortune of others. Mm-hmm which would seem to be the, the opposite of empathic joy. 
But I must say there is something enjoyable about schadenfreude at times. <laughs> um, but not, in a, not in, a, in a vicious way. But, you know, when you hear of, say, um, corrupt politicians who've been making a lot of money for themselves or their families out of, out of corrupt activities and, and destroying the, the public trust, you know, in governments, and they get found out right, and they go to jail... Well, I must say, I do experience a form of schadenfreude. Uh -huh. um, it's not that I, you know, wish bad things upon them, but I think there is, a, there is a healthy side to schadenfreude where it's like, well, they're the consequences, that's, that's the karma. You know, there is a sense of justice being carried through, not that you want, want anything really hostile or, you know... Um, have violent fantasies towards or anything, but it's like, yeah, that's kind of, that's your karma. Yeah. Caught up with you. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very different from being very vicious towards people who are perpetrators in crimes and so on and, and hating them. You know, it's a very different type of experience. But the Germans also have another saying um, uh, which is very relevant to this as well, um, is that uh, shared pain is half the pain and shared joy is twice the joy. So that's the other side of, of schadenfreude. When people think of empathy, um, particularly in, a, in my line of work in therapy, um, it's usually associated with um, having, um, you know, compassion towards the suffering of others, of negative emotions that people may go through, like depression, anxiety, and so on, you know, um, grief, and so on. Um, but it's not used as much to emphasise an empathy that we can have with positive feelings, like joy, happiness, love, etc., um, we usually only think of it in that negative sense. Um, but also, too, if you, as a therapist, if all you ever did was empathise with people's negative emotional states, then they wouldn't... That would be, that's a good beginning, because that people come in in distress. But if you just stayed there, people wouldn't grow. If that's all you did was empathise with negative states, then, in a sense... After a while, maybe that's all you reinforce. That's all you ever talk about. And it's important, not just in therapy, but like in friendships as well, that rather than just focusing on the negative, you know, and sharing negative feelings with one another, and that's what creates the bond in the relationship, is, is to look for opportunities to, to show empathy and playfulness with positive things that happen in people's lives, in our friends' lives or our, our families' lives. There's many, many people who um, form relationships out of talking about problems and negative feelings all the time. And, that, and that's the glue that keeps them together and there's nothing else there. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, they're, they're limited. The friendships become limited in their range and their richness if that's all we do. And there, there is such a thing as trauma bonding, you know, which happens to people who go through adverse experiences with one another. And there's something very, very touching about that, you know, where 
trauma can bring people, shared trauma can bring people closer to together rather than divide them. Um, there's something um, noble about that. But it doesn't have to just stay there. There's not, trauma bonding is not the only way of bonding, you know, is that bonding out of shared joy is, is where a relationship really, or a friendship really blossoms into something else, and something much more fulfilling. Um, years and years ago, when I was in the Sydney Zen Centre, I had a, a sudden flash of, of insight into um, how I experienced joy. And it was at the Gorex Run Zen Centre, that I, the land that I founded many, many years ago. And um, another teacher was there and I was sitting there listening to the Dharma talk and he might have said something funny or whatever it was. Um, and I noticed that there was um, a, an immediate sense of joy came into my mind. I think I wanted to laugh or something. And then, the, then I, it's probably because of the sharpness of mindfulness that you develop during a session that I really saw this so clearly. In the next moment, I cut it off. I, I saw myself doing it, like spontaneously came up and then I cut it off. And I went, ooh, that's interesting. And then I realised that was something that I did in my life. It, 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 growing out of some twisted Buddhist logic, <laughs> like, it was kind of like, it's a bit cynical, you know, it's like, well, joy's not going to last, so why bother experiencing it, just let it go. It was a cutting off. It's like a, almost like a fear of, of, of giving yourself into the vulnerability of joy, do you know, the openness of it, well, I just shut it down. And that was a turning point. I thought, well, that's, that's weird that I'm doing that, you know. Maybe I could experience a little bit more joy my life. And so that was a, a turning point where I thought, when it comes up, don't, don't cut it off, just let it linger there for as long as it wants to stay there and till it wants to go. You don't have to cut it off at all. It's like it was almost like a, a fear of losing something. If I cut it off in the first place, then there won't be a fear of losing it. Silly, crazy, right? So we often... Our brains are wired up to dwell on um, negative experiences um, because we often have to remember negative events so we're, we can predict what happens next time and be, be prepared. So our brains accumulate negative experiences like, um, like Velcros, you know, like cling, it clings to it. And um, one, one writer said that the, the opposite happens with joyful, happy experiences, it's like it slides off like Teflon. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't stick. And what's important, like in my experience during that session, is that when, when joyful experiences come up, either causeless joy just in your own being, or empathic joy towards others, dwell in it. You know, enjoy it. Let, it, let it be there. Don't have to cling to it, but allow it to be there so it kind of soaks in, it doesn't need to be pushed away.
So with practising empathic joy, um, I mean, it, it's just another form of generosity, really. Um, you know, it's a, it's a giving, giving over to oneself and getting outside of competitiveness and so on. And so the first step is to acknowledge envy, if it's there, but it may not be there. Um, I'm not saying it, it, it has to be, but that's one of the blocks. But if it's there, just acknowledge it. Eat the shit sandwich. And, but then you don't need... When you practice these, you don't need to wait for a feeling of empathic joy to arise and then I'll act on it. Like, I've got to feel it first and then I'll do it. Because if you, if you look at it that way around, you probably never practice it. Right? Um, it's acknowledging what may be blocking it or there's nothing blocking it and it just comes out freely. And then, usually what you need to do, or what I need to do, I, I need to start the doing first and the feelings follow, not the other way around. So I might notice where I'm holding back in, in being giving, and I'll, I'll acknowledge the block, but I'll just do it anyway. You know? And it, when, you, when you, like with generosity, if you start practising being more generous... You may think it's a bit fake at first because it's outside of your habit. Mm -hmm. Or um, you, you might doubt whether it's genuine. But if you just keep doing it and doing it, you do it and then the feeling of joy comes after it, after you've been generous. And then you just keep practising and practising and it just becomes a natural thing to do more and more. So empathic joy is like that as well. Don't wait for the feeling, just, just do it anyway. And if you do it long enough, you'll see that it's a, um, a mutually fulfilling thing to do. The other thing, you know, just to end on too, is there are aspects in our life where um, it's very easy to compliment others or celebrate their joy and so on. So, some areas are easy and some not so easy. And it depends um, where we have invested our identity and how competitive we might be. I'll give you an example. Say when it comes to flower arranging, um, I've got no idea how to f arrange flowers and I've, I don't really have... I enjoy looking at them, but I don't really have a lot of interest in the skill of it. So if someone's really good at arranging flowers, I have no envy. In at all. I'm not competitive. I've, I've got no investment in it. I can just easily appreciate it and appreciate their skill and show it. But then you, you go further up the line. So I play a flute, right, and I'm an amateur flute player. Um, and so I then ask my question, if someone was a better flute player than what I was, would I be envious? And it's a little bit further up the scale. It's not too bad. I can, I could, I can be be complimentary and, and joyful towards other people who can play the flute better than I can. But it's getting, getting up there a little bit more, right? But then when I think of, so where, where would my identity be more solidly invested? Well, probably in being a psychologist and being a Dharma teacher. Mm -hmm. right? So if I see other people getting acknowledged for things around their, those areas, that might be the thing that will trigger me a little bit more, mm -hmm. and not always, but if there was something, it's where we invest in our identity, 
is where we're going to have the greatest struggle and that's what we need to acknowledge. And then when that happens, you eat the shit sandwich. <laughs> you go, okay, that's, that's, what I'm, that's what's coming up and um, it's humbling and, and you may let it go or you wish that person well or if you don't know them or you give, you give, you, you give some generosity towards it until it becomes natural for you to do. And that's how we cultivate this hardest teaching. <laughs>